Best ever listeners, this episode has some noise in the background. It is me typing while I am taking notes. My bad. Apologize for that. We fixed it. It happened in 40 episodes, and then we resolved the issue. Too many, I know, but sorry. It's over with. We resolved it. I hope you can power through it and listen to the good stuff that the guest has to say. Actually, making that decision was very difficult, not because the property wasn't good. The numbers showed well. And it was just getting over the fear of not following everybody else that was going on in the market. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us. And he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, in addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. Uh, when we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record. But we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals and People who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got, and assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, all you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, but besides that, you know the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of the fluffy stuff. With us today, Doug Marshall. How you doing, Doug? Hey, I'm doing really well, Joe. How about you? Oh, I'm doing well, and I'm excited about our conversation because Doug has been a real estate professional for nearly 40 years. He has more than 30 years of experience financing apartments and other commercial real estate. He's the author of the book, Mastering the Art of Commercial Real Estate Investing, How to Successfully Build Wealth and Grow Passive Income. 
from your rental properties based in Portland, Oregon. With that being said, Doug, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yes, I'd be happy to. As Joe has been saying, I have nearly four decades of experience in commercial real estate. I started off with a developer out of California for a number of years. He moved me to do some property management for him on Class A apartments in Atlanta, Georgia. And then beginning in 1987, I permanently went over to the financing side of the business. My entrepreneurial journey began when I started my own commercial mortgage brokerage firm back in 2003, Marshall Commercial Funding. And simply put, what I do for a living is I help real estate investors get the best possible financing for their rental property so they can optimize the return on their investments. And I've been a commercial real estate investor, both apartments and office properties, since 2007. We have so much to talk about. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. One thing that stood out to me was one of the last things you said, and that is help investors get the best financing to optimize the return on their apartments. So let's talk about that. What questions should be asked in order to determine what type of financing is best to optimize the returns? Well, that's a good question. As a mortgage broker for the last 30 plus years, I have found that most real estate investors aren't particularly knowledgeable about the real estate calculations that are necessary to really succeed in the business. They have some knowledge of how maybe to value commercial real estate, but they generally are deficient in one or more different areas. There's really six different types of commercial real estate calculations besides knowing how to value real estate. You need to determine how the loan amount will based on the lender's underwriting parameters. And many people don't understand what those lending underwriting parameters are. And how do you calculate a property's cash on cash return? Many people do, but surprisingly, there's some that don't. How to leverage a property and how that impacts your property's cash on cash return is another example. Sometimes you can over leverage a property and actually reduce your cash on cash return. And then how does loan amortization impact your, your investment? There's different types of amortization methods and surprisingly, some people don't know what they are. And then the minimum financial requirements that lenders require of borrowers in order for them to be approved for a loan. So what I've done in this book that I've just recently completed is that I have a short 10-question quiz to find out how knowledgeable they are on these six different types of commercial real estate calculations. And this gives the reader a pretty good understanding of where they stack up compared to their peers. And for those questions they get wrong, I try to explain in detail how these commercial real estate formulas are calculated. Mm -hmm. So I want to summarize to make sure I have them right. One is to calculate the value of the real estate. Two is the loan amount based on lenders' underwriting parameters. Three is the cash and cash return. Four is how to leverage a property and how it impacts the property's cash on cash return. Five is loan amortization impact on the investment. And six is minimum requirement of the borrowers to be approved. Did I get that right? That's correct. Okay, cool. Yeah. Which one you want to talk about? Well, I talk about any one of them. I think that those are just nice guidelines to follow. And I try to explain it in detail in the book as to what needs to be done. Okay, let's talk about leverage. How to leverage a property and how it impacts a property's cash on cash return. And you said, 
If it's over leverage, that can hurt the cash flow. Can you elaborate? Yes, there's both positive and negative leverage that you can put on a property. And it's dependent upon the interest rate on the loan, but also the cap rate. And they are very closely aligned. And sometimes when the interest rate is higher than the cap rate, the more leverage you put on it, the worse the cash on cash return and vice versa. So if you have a higher cap rate property, say it's a 5% cap rate and you have a 4% loan that you can use, then you have positive cash flow. But you have to run the numbers. You have to look at it. You have to see, okay, at at a certain loan to value, what happens to my cash on cash return? And as you play with the numbers, you'll see that as you increase the leverage, you're going to see whether or not it improves your cash on cash return because sometimes you have less equity that's required as you leverage your property. And if it's positive leverage, you'll increase your cash on cash return. And just the opposite will happen if you'll have a negative cash on cash return as well if your interest rate is higher than your cap rate. Mm -hmm. If interest rate's higher than the cap rate, then you would have a negative return assuming that you operate the property similar to how it's already been operated. But if you operate it differently, then that would change things, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm just talking about not how you're going to operate the same way of both scenarios. How you leverage it will determine your cash on cash return. But obviously, if you're going to buy a property, let's say I was listening to one of your podcasts where, forget the- Theo. He was talking about a 2% cap rate. And it doesn't make sense to buy a 2% cap rate unless you have the ability to have a vision for that property that will determine whether or not you can get a higher return because you know how to increase rents or lower expenses, or you're going to improve the property's tenant profile, whatever it might be. So yes, the vision that you have for that property will determine whether or not you should proceed. Let's talk about the loan amortization impact on the investment. You said there's different types of amortization. Can you go into the most common types for commercial loans? Well, there's three. There's obviously interest only, and that's really nice as far as optimizing your cash on cash return. But then you have two types of amortization methods that have different impacts. One of them being a 3360 method, which is the traditional approach where every month assumes a 30-day month. And then there's the amortization where it's called a 365 method, where This was started about 15, 20 years ago with the conduit lenders, and they saw an easy way of adding another five days worth of interest into the calculation for the year. And so they would provide you with a slightly better interest rate generally than you could get with additional loan, but it would amortize more slowly. So you just have to know over time which of those three amortization methods you want to use. Will you elaborate a little bit more on the 3360 and the 365? Just for someone who perhaps isn't familiar with these types of terms, just go a little bit more high level. Okay. For the last 2,000 years, let's say, the traditional approach to financing was based on a 30-day month, even though some months might have as few as 28 days and as many as 31 And it just made it easier for everyone to make that calculation. And most loans prior to, let's say, 15 or 20 years ago, almost all of them were that 
type of amortization method. But as I said, with the actual 365 loan, things change. Instead of having 360 days, you now have 365 days or an extra five days of interest. So the mortgage payment would stay the same, but more would be applied to interest and less to the mortgage balance. So it slows down the amount of amortization that takes place with the actual 365 type of amortization method. Thank you for that. With the interest-only approach, what business plan typically does this fit the best? Well, I think it's a great way to get started on a property. And in the last few years, especially the lenders that I've gone to, it's not uncommon that they will offer two or three years or more of interest only. And the advantage of that is if you really do take a look at your cash on cash return is not quite doubled when you use an interest only type of approach. So if it's a little bit skinny when you buy the property, as far as the cash on cash return, you go with a uh, interest only situation, all of a sudden you're more flush with cash. So you might initially be a 4% cash on cash return for you. Well, if you were to go interest only, it'd probably be close to 7 or 8%. And the advantage of that approach, Joe, is that you can make the changes necessary, especially when you have a net value added play that you're working with. So the property is maybe a little tired, needs some renovation, and maybe you need to improve the tenant profile, requires maybe having a little higher vacancy because you're moving some people out and you're upgrading various units in an apartment, for example. The interest-only approach still allows you to cash flow the property. For an investor who hears that and they're thinking, oh, but I wouldn't do that because then I'm not paying down the principal, what are your thoughts about that thought process? Well, that's true. There are trade-offs between doing that, but reality is, is that most investors realize that their properties are always going to have debt on them. Very few people invest in commercial real estate, apartments, office, retail, expecting to eventually at some point in time to have paid off the loan. You can do that, but if you're really trying to optimize your property's cash on cash return, you'll always have a property leveraged. So I would not be concerned about going with the interest only for a few years. The thing I would be concerned about, though, is that you have a grace period. You know, say you've got three years to get that property turned around. You want to make sure that by the third year, you've pretty much stabilized your property. Rents have gone up so that when you go back to an amortization of the loan, that your property cash flow, so that it has sufficient cash flow that's been generated as a result of those improvements that you've made over the first couple of years. Let's go to the sixth calculation, the minimum requirement of borrowers to be approved. What's a rule of thumb? Well, there are several rules of thumb for lenders, and I go through it in the book. There's actually uh, 10 different ones. I don't have them in front of me right now, but there are 10 different rules of thumb that most lenders go through when looking at a potential borrower. And, and a couple that are most important probably is your net worth, and your net worth needs to be at least equal to the loan amount. So if you're looking for, a, a, let's say, a $5 million loan, you better have a $5 million net worth. And as far as liquidity is concerned, 
I've always been surprised at how lax most lenders are on liquidity requirements. So let's say that your mortgage payment just happens to be 20000 a month. They would require a minimum of as many as nine months of mortgage payments on that particular property. So let's say on a $20,000 per month payment, you would have 120000 to 180000 of liquid assets in your balance sheet to be at their very minimum requirement. What are the ranges that you've seen for liquidity from lenders? Well, usually it's in that six to nine month requirement. That's what I normally see. Okay. Six to nine month requirement of paying what again? The mortgage payment. So if you have a $20,000 mortgage payment, you would need to have six times $20,000. As far as the net worth goes, just for clarification purposes, it's net worth equal to the loan amount prior to closing, so the property can't count towards your net worth. With your track record as a professional, what are some of the things that you've evolved in your business over the years so that you've gotten better at what you do? That's a very good question. And I think that it's an incredibly important question. For example, first of all, I'm a one-man shop and I'm out of Portland, Oregon. And I had a client that was buying an apartment in Phoenix, Arizona. And I initially told him, I think probably the best thing that you can do is to hire someone down there to do your financing for you. And he did that. He went down to Phoenix. He found a very reputable national brokerage house that if I told you the name, you would know it. And he showed me a few weeks into it what they had offered. And I was surprised it wasn't that competitive. I was expecting that they would know the market much better. They would have much better sources of funds available. And they really didn't. So I said, well, let me see what I can do. And I came up with some lending sources of my own that I've used traditionally that would go down to Phoenix. But the difference between what the other mortgage brokerage firm used and myself was not so much on the actual rates and terms, though mine were slightly better. It was on the presentation I saw what they provided and it was like on a four-point font and you could barely read it and they gave no guidance as to which one they would choose. And they'd come up with eight different lending alternatives. And what I've been able to do is I found out exactly what the borrower was looking for, what his hot buttons were. And so I was able to say, this is how much cash would be required at closing under three alternatives I have. This is your cash on cash return initially. This is what your internal rate of return will be if you choose these options. And it was like one was providing you, spewing you with facts, and the other, myself, was providing them with the information that they really needed to be able to make a decision. So I was able to win that business, even though the national firm should have had a leg up on me for two reasons. They were local and they had correspondent relationships with life companies that they could have gone to. Mm Mm-hmm. When you take a look at the real estate financing and how it's evolved or devolved, what are some things that are in place now from a financing standpoint that either surprise you or you would certainly take advantage of that perhaps weren't in place before? I will say that the financing has evolved over time. And I think back where we were prior to the Great Recession, and there were things that were going on at that particular point in time, even on the commercial side. Really, it was the residential side where the abuses were. 
But on the commercial side of the business, we were in some ways way too aggressive on offering certain types of products. And in recent years, as they got out of the the recession and moved forward, lenders have become a lot more conservative in their rates and terms. Even so, when the heyday at the top of the real estate cycle, which we probably peaked maybe last year or maybe the year before on apartments, I've seen a real change in how lenders calculate what properties they or what lenders they want to become involved in. But it's generally, it's become more conservative and not like there's additional advantages. Are you thinking of something else, Joe? I'm not. No, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Sometimes I just ask questions. I have no idea which direction they're going to go. (laughs) You got four decades. I don't. So I figured I'd just tee it up and see where you took it. I looked on Amazon. I couldn't find your book. Is it published? It is not published at this particular point in time. It will be available for pre-order in June, and it becomes available for launch date is in September for the ebook, and paperback launch date is for December. It is being published by Morgan James Publishing. Cool. I thought something was amiss whenever I couldn't find it. Okay, cool. And I saw on Amazon you can pre-order and it showed the launch date, December. It's certainly a book that I'm going to be buying and I'll just click the pre-order button after we get done having our conversation so I make sure I get on that list for December. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice would have to be to pull the trigger. Back in 2009, when the real estate market was in collapse. We had the opportunity to buy a property called Cedar Lane Apartments. And I had to get over the fear factor of actually doing it. Everything at that particular point in time was still in decline. It was plummeting. And actually making that decision was very difficult, not because the property wasn't good. The numbers showed well. And it was just getting over the fear of not following everybody else that was going on in the market. Because at that particular point in time, people were trying to sell their properties. They were trying to hunker down to some extent. Lenders weren't lending at that time. So the best investment I've ever made was right at the bottom of the market. And I had to get over the fear of making the decision to go forward. What'd you buy that property for? We bought it for 39,000 a unit. And today, conservatively, it's worth about 130000 a unit. <laughs> Those are just stupid numbers. How much did you put into each unit? We only put in a modest amount. It's like probably five to 10000 a unit. It wasn't in bad shape. We bought it out of foreclosure because the owner was taking the cash flow from that property to build a condo development that went sideways on him, and he lost the property. So it was a little bit tired, but it wasn't in bad condition. How many units? It was 56. Got it. So you bought it for around $2.7 million And now I'm going to enjoy doing this math. 130,000 times 56, $7.2 million. Yep. That's a decent chunk in nine years. Yeah, I wish all of them went like that, though. Oh, they're not all like that? I can't believe that. <laughs> well, we'll get into the opposite end of that here in the lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 
212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. Do you buy property worth over a million dollars? And are you missing huge income tax benefits? Cost segregation is one of the methods I use myself to lower taxes on our properties and increase the cash flow. Call Yona Wise with Madison Specs at 732-333-1477. Best ever book you've read? Well, the problem with that is that I love to read books and I have over 200 listed on my recommended reading list on my website. And I would suggest that your best ever listeners go to my website and see what those books are. But right now, the book that I'm really fascinated with is called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. And that's not even on your website for a recommended list. I just searched for it. Yeah, I'm in the process of reading it right now. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I enjoy how you structure this recommended reading list. And I see you got Robert Greene, one of my favorite authors on here. I'm just kind of scrolling through. The other thing I would tell you is that if you take a look there in the far right column, the little icon uh, looks like a book. Summary. And it's a summary, and I have about 40 books that I've summarized over the years. So if your listeners are not really into reading, they can click on this PDF and read an 8- to 10-page summary of the book and find out if they like the topic, and if they do, then they can then buy the book. But, um, uh, yeah. I, That's incredible. Yeah, so you have about 40, I mean, almost 50 now, of books that I find worthy enough to summarize. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Well, I like to talk about my property that I bought a couple of years earlier than the Cedar Lane Apartments, which was the Grand Slam. And I want to let you in on a little secret if you don't know this one already. Not every commercial real estate property that I've ever invested in turns out to be a home run. <laughs> and now that I've got that confession off my chest, maybe some of your listeners can relate. In the summer of 2007, which was turned out to be about the absolute peak of the real estate market, I, along with the like-minded group of investors purchased a 32-unit apartment located in a small town. And at the time, I thought it seemed like it'd be a good investment. It had large unit sizes and was one-story buildings. It was located in a nice, quiet little town, and it had the potential down the road to convert to condos. And I was thinking to myself, you know, what could go wrong? Well, it turned out that a lot of things could go wrong, most of which could not have been predicted by most seasoned of real estate investors. Uh, a couple of years ago, we sold this property, and we didn't do too badly. I got a 7% internal rate of return on that investment, so it wasn't like we lost money, but we owned it for almost 10 years. And we found out, there's four things that I found out from this property. One, market timing is everything. The old adage, you make your money on investment when you purchase it and not when you sell it, is very true. And this investment had very little chance to perform well because we simply paid too much for it. And if we had a purchased the property a couple of years earlier with a much less inflated price, we could probably would have performed well. Another lesson was that there's a reason why properties in small markets have higher cap rates. When the economy went bust in 2008, unemployment soared, vacancy rates rose and rents flattened or declined because of concessions. And as bad as this was in the large metropolitan areas, it was far, far worse in small towns, which had higher vacancy rates and struggled with more significant renting concessions. And when the commercial real estate market returned in the large cities, it was still another year or two before the small town this property was located in began to see occupancy rates rise. 
and you start to see rents increase again. So that's a couple of things. Other two things I learned from this apartment is that never underestimate the cost of deferred maintenance. This was truly a value-added play, and we thought we had plenty of money necessary to get this capital improvements done, and we, in reality, weren't even close. So the property kind of limped along because we could not put in all the capital improvements we wanted to. We had to do it over time. And then finally, it's a truism that I've learned over the years, and I bet you bet you probably have learned it as well. Uh, you need to pay close attention to your on-site manager. The old adage is you get what you inspect, not what you expect. It's very true. And during the years that we owned this property, we had three different on-site managers, and they always started off well, but their performance was highly correlated to how well you monitored them. <laughs> and if you monitored them well, then things went well. And if you didn't, it went downhill. So those are the four lessons I learned from my loser property that I purchased in 2007. Great stuff. I want to make sure I captured the second one. I got one, three, and four. What was the second one about cap rates? What was your takeaway? There's a reason why cap rates are higher in small markets. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, reality is a lot of people, especially in the last couple of years, have been chasing cap rates. Well, I can't buy anything in this nice metropolitan area. I'm going to go to this small little community where the cap rates are higher. And yeah, they are higher there. There's a reason for it. Really, when the economy turns, you're going to find out just why they shouldn't have been in that particular small little town. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Well, I have a couple of different ministries that I'm involved in. I have a ministry called the Jesus Table. We provide a meal and a free conversation to anyone who wants to come every Tuesday night. been doing that for about seven, eight years now. And the, the second one is a nonprofit that's called Fairhaven Recovery Homes. And it's a nonprofit that provides a structured environment with housing for, for alcoholics and for drug addicts that want to turn their lives around. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? They can get in touch with me by going to my website. And if they go to marshallcf.com forward slash best ever, they will see the pre-order page for my book. Oh, cool. All right. Well, I'll just go there and pre-order it through your website. Thank you so much, Doug, for being on the show. Lots of knowledge and helpful, practical tips from how to leverage a property, how leverage affects a property's cash on cash return. We talked about the interest rate is higher than the cap rate. It would be negative, but not factoring in the business plan. And certainly the business plan will have a great influence on that, depending on what it is. Then also loan amortization impacting the investment. One, the interest only approach, and then the two types of amortization, the 3360 and the 365 and you educated us on the differences between those two and why people would do interest-only loans on value-add deals over for a short term, as well as the minimum requirements of borrowers, the net worth equal to the loan amount, and then also liquidity between six to nine month requirement of monthly mortgage payments. Plus, congrats on your 2009 deal. And congrats on the 32-unit deal that didn't go so well. You still got a 7% IRR, and you bought it at a terrible time. So that's pretty good. Plus, you got lessons learned that you're applying towards future stuff. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Do you buy property worth over a million dollars? And are you missing huge income tax benefits? 
cost segregation is one of the methods I use myself to lower taxes on our properties and increase the cash flow. Call Yona Wise with Madison Specs at 732-333-1477.